Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Real Ghost Stories Online. Call in your real ghost story now at 855-853-4802 or write in at realghoststoriesonline.com. You're about to enter the world of the unknown and quite possibly the undead. This is Real Ghost Stories Online. Today on Real Ghost Stories Online, it is an encore presentation of one of our best interviews that we've ever done. You may have not heard this. It's from way, 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 way back in the infancy of the show. It's when we talked to Andrea Perrin, one of the children that was portrayed in the movie The Conjuring. This is her real-life account of what was portrayed in that movie uh, in her own words and uh, also described in her book, House of Darkness, House of Light. It's a very, very interesting interview. We originally broadcast this in two parts, but uh, for this, we put it all into one entire episode so you can enjoy it uninterrupted over the holidays. And by the way, if you want some brand new episodes of the show, there's 18 of them waiting for you. When you sign up to become an EPP, you sign up on the website, realghoststoriesonline.com. The second you sign up, that email with links to 18 brand new episodes goes directly to you instantly. So you want those brand new episodes, sign up on the website, realghoststoriesonline.com. So enjoy today's interview with Andrea Perrin of the Conjurer. Real Ghost Stories Online. A good background on what uh, the story is and where it's coming from. The the book House of Darkness, House of Light chronicles the life that she shared with the dead and living alike in a colonial era farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. She was born in 1958 at the age of 12. Her parents purchased the Arnold Estate, beginning an incredible journey beyond the realm of reality, as most perceive it to be. A collective memoir, it details the encounters experienced by each and every member of her family. Seven more mortals spent a decade exploring the vast expanse of possibilities which exist beyond the five senses, employing the six for clarity. Andrea received an interdisciplinary degree in English and philosophy from the Catham College in 1980 and two weeks later left the farm with her family moving to Georgia in June of that year. She has since owned two businesses, spent nearly a decade as a counselor before abandoning her career to tell this story to write the book she believes she was destined to write. She lives quietly with her mother in rural Georgia, where she continues her work as the final manuscript is poised for publication in October of 2013. She's a human rights advocate, an animal rights activist, and an outspoken member of the world community, which she insists needs to be saved from themselves. You can visit her YouTube channel and website for more information, and we will link to that on our website here at realghoststoriesonline.com. House of Darkness, House of Light is no ordinary ghost story. It's a collective memoir, expansive in scope. It's essentially a cosmic love story. Anyone unprepared for its darkest content should choose less dense material, according to the author, as the series of books functions as an interactive 
literature. It's meant to be read and assimilated and absorbed slowly, like a spiritual meditation. It takes the reader on a decade-long journey through the darkness and into the light of higher consciousness, imburning the participating reader with a heightened level of awareness in the process. No one leaves its pages unaltered by the experience, as was a family who had the encounters originally. The parent family purchased their farmhouse in 1970 and spent the next 10 years discovering that good and evil are in a perpetual state of war, and there is something beyond our mortal existence. It poses far more questions than answers and forces the reader to ponder some uncomfortable concepts. Andrea describes the place as a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse. It's a place where time and space stand still and become and become irrelevant to the encounter shared space. It's a window into the past and future alike, a point of empathy for those who are capable of comprehending its contents. Death is not an end and may in fact be only the beginning. The parent family waited more than 30 years to tell their tale of darkness and light. They had to process what occurred and their home and their lives and the world to be ready for what they had to share with its people. As Carolyn, the matriarch of the family, explains, this is not the kind of thing one should rightfully take to the grave. It requires courage and an open mind. But by all accounts, the world is ready for House of Darkness, House of Light. And of course, the film The Conjuring does tell the story in broad, sweeping strokes. So let's start right there, Andrea. First of all, thank you so much for joining us. So thrilled. The reason I found out about you was through the movie that came out, The Conjuring. And of course, the, the question that everyone has right off the bat is uh, the movie versus the book, which are two very different things. One is told from the perspective of the Warrens, and one is told from you, the perspective of you and your family who actually went through it. But, of course, the thing that everyone's going to remember initially is is very likely the thing that brought their interest was, was the movie itself. So let's just start off by dispelling the differences between what Hollywood put on the screen and, and what you and your family actually did go through those discrepancies uh, before we get into to more of, of discussing what actually happened in that house and with your family. Okay. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that I thought that the movie was absolutely beautiful. Um, it was, it was uh, just a delightful and informative film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a heart-wrenching film. It had uh, so many different elements of our story in it, and yet it didn't tell a single scene from the books, not exactly. Okay. Uh, and the reason for that is that the um, the reason for that is that the Warrens, Mrs. Warren, provided them with a plethora of information. And I gave them a great deal of information, the producers I'm speaking of. Mm -hmm. And in the process of doing that, they had more information than they could possibly work with to put the story together on film. They couldn't compress 10 years' worth of experience, evidence, or investigation into a two-hour film. Mm -hmm. And so what they did instead was they cherry-picked from this batch of evidence information and that batch of information and came up with a third story 
Okay. So there's nothing in the film that actually happened exactly the way you see it in the film. Okay. Some of the discrepancies are, um, first of all, they've got Bathsheba uh, Sherman killing her child in 1863. She was already an old woman and beyond childbearing years in mm-hmm. 1863. Um, there is no evidence anywhere that we could find ever that she was a practicing witch. And the thing that's most disturbing about that is the folks out there, what I call the lunatic fringe, who took this story so seriously, because, of course, if it's in a movie, it must be real, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, decided to go up to Harrisville, Rhode Island, and desecrate her tombstone. Wow. So, unfortunately, it's in pieces now. It stood since 1885 when she passed away, Mm -hmm. and now it will have to be restored or replaced because someone thought that it would be a good idea to bash it to pieces. Uh, Very disturbing. Yeah. Uh, It's it's what I feared. It was my fear that the film would um, have this impact the the witch story uh, that that the movie attached to it does that originate with the movie putting that in there for for the movie purposes or was that an urban legend for for lack of a better term surrounding Bathsheba before the movie came out well i would i would say that it's more of a rural legend rural legend okay sure um and it was because in the early 1800s, when uh, a baby died in Bathsheba, Bathsheba's care, mm-hmm. uh, it was found to have a needle impaled in its skull when the body was examined. And the uh, autopsy that uh, took place said the baby died from convulsions. There's no proof that it was her own child. Uh-huh. Uh, and there was an inquest held in Chapachet because at the time, Burrowville was not even an incorporated town. At, and so in the next town over or beneath it is uh, Gloucester, Rhode Island, and the town seat is Chapacha, and that's where the inquest was held. There was no evidence to back up the suspicion that she might have claimed this child's life, and the judge dismissed it. But in the court of public opinion, mm-hmm. she was tried and convicted and lived a miserable life with this hanging over her head her entire life. When she did marry, she was Bathsheba Thayer, and when she married um, a Sherman, she had four children, and three of them died before the age of four years old. You know, wow. this was a time when infant mortality was through the roof. Sure. And so only one of her children survived to adulthood. So, of course, judgment was probably placed upon her by all those surrounding as the other children she had passed, uh, thinking, well... There's there's more to it than just passing, although very likely it was just them passing because of the infant mortality rate. Well, part of the reason why I included all of this information to the best of my ability in three volumes mm-hmm. was as a cautionary tale that, uh, you know, be careful what you say about other people. Be careful what you say. Words can be weapons, mm-hmm. and they were used on her in life and after life. Mm-hmm. So the reason that I wrote the book was to dispel what I could of rumors that still swirl sure. about this woman, you know, hundreds of years later. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not fair to, you know, would any of us want that? You know, no, would any of no. Us 
want that kind of uh, blight uh, on us. But she really struggled in life. And according to the one man that we met when we moved to the farm, who was an abutting landowner, uh, he knew her when he was a boy. And he said that she was a bitter, hateful, vindictive old woman, that she was very cruel to the farm hands at, at the farm, that she was uh, just hateful. Mm-hmm. And I have to wonder, is her transition into that mindset because of how she was treated? You know, the word on the street was back in the early 1800s that she had committed infanticide and sold her soul to the devil for eternal youth and beauty, and that baby was the sacrifice. Uh, you know, it wasn't that far past the time that women, by accusation only, mm-hmm. were being murdered in Salem, Massachusetts. Sure. So this is serious business, when an accusation can cause cost you your life. Yeah. You know, so that's why I spend a great deal of time uh, going through that story um, in all three volumes. Okay. Not to not to uh, belabor the point, but there is no evidence that mm-hmm. Bathsheba Sherman was a witch or that she ever killed anyone. Okay. The other thing is uh, the way that they set it up in the film. They made it seem as though. The Perrin family was just a, a bunch of godless heathens, and that the devout Warrens came in and swooped in and rescued us. And mm-hmm. that really isn't the case. Uh, they did their best. They tried their hardest to intervene on our behalf as a family. Mm-hmm. But their presence in the house really stirred things up even more. And the fact of the matter is that we were all born and raised Catholic, and all of us were baptized into the church. And we went to church regularly as a family, and the Catholic Church turned its back on us. It wasn't the other way around. So that's a point that really needs to be clarified. The most important that I can say on behalf of my family is that my mother would never, ever have done anything to hurt any of her children, ever. And the implication in the film is that she was possessed by this demon spirit Mm -hmm. who was convincing her to start killing off her own children. Mm -hmm. That couldn't have been further from the truth. Not possible. What was your your mother's opinion of that portrayal in the movie? My mother hasn't seen this film yet. Oh, she hasn't? And I don't know if she ever will. Okay. I don't want to expose her to... Uh, what is a very, very intense scene, and yet what actually really happened, there was no exorcism in our house. Mm -hmm. There was a seance that the Warrens initiated. They brought a priest, they brought a medium, and an entire technical crew with them. Mm -hmm. It did not happen in the cellar. It happened in the living room, the dining room of the house, uh, above, on the first floor. And what happened was actually so intense that they toned it down for the film. Really? Yes. So the the scene where the exorcism takes place, it really was actually portraying the seance that occurred, not an exorcism. Right. Okay. Right. And so the, the whole series of events that led up to it, it was a perfectly calm night. There was no issue. My mother wasn't freaking out. She was actually very quiet and almost despondent. And the reason that she was was because my father was throwing a hissy fit 
when he found out that the Warrens were coming, and she didn't even know that they were bringing other people with them. So the thought was it was just going to be the two of them coming to investigate, and then this whole crew shows up, essentially. Yeah, he was not a happy camper. How how did the Warrens end up, up staying in the house? I'm I'm quite, uh, I'm just thinking from a perspective of a homeowner of a father, uh, you know. And if you call somebody on, you get this whole unexpected crew of people that show up, and you're not happy. Did your father try and and get them out of the house, or or what was the reaction there? What 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 pursued? Well, it it uh, the implication in the film is that the Warrens literally moved in with us. Mm-hmm. First of all, my mother never sought anybody's help with the with the house. She didn't even know who the Warrens were when they showed up at our door uh, just before Halloween in uh, 1973. Okay. So 40 years ago, right about this time, is when they came to the house, and she had no idea who they were. Um, a group, a young group of college students, had come to the house and had gotten wind of the predicament. And it was one of them, Keith Johnson, mm-hmm. who had actually informed the Warrens of the trouble that we were having. So were and, the Warrens ever actually invited, or was it they just showed up out of curiosity because of what they had heard? Uh, no, Keith told them, and they just came to the house. He gave them the address. Oh, wow, okay. They came to the house about six weeks after he and his group um, had, had been up to visit us. And he had such an intense experience in the house that he felt certain that there was a a serious problem there. Mm -hmm. And that's when he decided he went to a seminar that the Warrens were giving at a local university. And he informed them at that time of what our predicament was. But the Warrens only came to our house five or six times total over about a year and a half period. There were many, many things that happened in that house that are chronicled in the books that they didn't even know about Mm -hmm. because the last time we saw them was in the summer of 1974, which is when the seance occurred, and my father flipped out and threw everybody out of the house, and uh, you know, unceremoniously with some overt language used mm-hmm. and threw everybody out of the house once my mother regained consciousness. Oh, wow. Okay. It was uh, a very, very bad scene. And I'll tell you uh, personally, I will never, ever engage in a gathering of souls or spirits or a seance or a Ouija board or anything, anything having to do with the dark arts. Mm-hmm. Because the fact of the matter is that night they opened a door that they could not close. Mm-hmm. They opened a door, and it's like I, I often say to people, it's akin to living in Brooklyn and throwing open the doors to your brownstone and then standing on the street and telling everybody that passes by that your house is open. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the same mindset. You're just inviting trouble. <laughs> yes, it is. It's begging for it. And in the process, it turned into a fiasco because they could not control what happened. The medium collapsed on the table. Ed Warren, when my mother was tossed literally from one room into the next a good 20 feet away, uh, and I heard her head hit the floor of the parlor, uh, my father leaped out of his chair and went to leave to go to my mother immediately. Ed Warren 
grabbed him by the arm to try to stop him from intervening on her behalf, and my father turned around and punched him squarely in the face and took him to the floor. Wow. It was very ugly. I want to hear more about that night, but let's 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 build up to that a little bit. Let's let's talk about some of the events that occurred that led up to that night and then the the pursuing years years after that because obviously the movie kind of portrays it as you lived there for a little while and moved on which is certainly not the case no not um, at all in, in reality um before we move on to the next subject is there anything else you wanted to dispel about the differences between the movie and reality any of the big points that you want to get out there for our audience well i would say that the most important thing is that the film got it right in many respects and the, in the broad strokes, they really painted a beautiful picture of our family. And what they told was a story of the Perrin family enduring an extreme haunting. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the end, in the analysis of it, the love that we shared conquered the fear. Sure. And good conquers evil. I think those are the most important messages in the film. And I think that it really is very educational. Keep in mind that this film was originally uh, designed to tell the story of Ed and Lorraine Warren. That's why it starts mm-hmm. with them, with the Annabelle doll and the nurses in Hartford, Connecticut. Sure. And that's, a, that's a story, too. That's one of the first major investigations that they conducted. Mm-hmm. And somehow it got uh, weaved into our story, but the Annabelle doll had nothing to do with our family at all. Sure, no. Uh, that was a separate, distinct issue. But it also led into the story uh, about our family. Mm-hmm. So because ours was the next, and then remember at the end of the film, they got a call about a house in Amityville. <laughs> I, I, I laughed out loud in the theater when I heard that yeah. line. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, there we go. <laughs> and there it is, yeah. Yep, uh-huh. that's where that's... Um, I, I wanted to ask you about this, and this is something I, I already know the answer to, but I know it's it's going to be that it's the most common question you get, I know. Um, but I thought, let's throw it out there right at the beginning, just so we can get this question answered in our listeners' minds, so they can really grasp the rest of your story and the rest of this interview. And of course, that question is, I can even, you can ask it for yourself, I'm sure you know, what made your family stay in the house for as long as you did after these things started occurring? It is the, the question that I hear most frequently. I actually even asked it on the FAQ page. I uh, oh. answered it on the FAQ sure. page of my website because <laughs> I hear it so much. Sure. But my favorite take on it is what the hell is wrong with you people that you stayed there for a decade? Yeah, that, that's not how I, I would prefer to ask that question, you know, because there's obviously a lot more to it. You don't want to be accusatory because everyone has a story and everybody has reasons for what they do. Uh, it just I, I would love to hear, and I actually I have heard your story before but for our, our audience and our listeners uh, why why is that what would be the reasoning that your family stayed there for so long well my mother found the house in june of 1980 the moment she saw it she knew it was home and it was where our family belonged a few days later my father came back from a business trip and we all got in the car and went up to the farm to see it for the first time all of us had the exact same reaction. This is the most beautiful place on earth. We want to live here forever and ever. It was instantaneous love. It was the law of attraction. Mm -hmm. It was, there were so many different elements 
to it. Uh, and yet, uh, in all the times that we visited um, dear old Mr. Kenyon, who was actually selling the property to my parents, none of us ever had any kind of supernatural encounter on the property, and we were all over it. It was like we knew the place. All of us knew the place from the moment we got there and didn't want to go back home to Cumberland. Wow. We wanted to stay and just move in with yeah. Mr. Kenyon. Um, so it was a very compelling attraction that our family had to this place. And I'll, I'll follow that up in a moment. Okay. Uh, however, when it took about five months to negotiate the sale, the surveys, the inspections, the everything, the pulling the money together, it was a huge, huge investment uh, compared to our little Cape Cod in Cumberland. Mm -hmm. That had to be sold. You know, there were so many complications. Everything fell perfectly into place for us to go to the farm. Mm -hmm. And they closed on it at the beginning of December of 1970. We didn't move in until after Christmas. And that was when we had our first experience. The day that we were moving in, four of the five of us children had our first uh, supernatural experience in the house. But all of us just passed it off as we must have been seeing things or, you know, whatever that was. Okay, it was chaos. We were moving into a new house in the middle of a snowstorm. There were people everywhere. Sure. It was chaos. What was that first experience that you had in that house? Uh, the first experience was seeing a full-body apparition in the dining room who was fixated and watching Mr. Kenyon pass, pass the last of his belongings from the china cabinet that was in that room. And I saw him as a full, complete body, solid body. Mm -hmm. uh, I walked past him and said good morning, and he ignored me, and I kept walking. So you thought it was just like a friend uh, of yes. the previous owner hanging out. <laughs> yes, I did. And then Christine saw him, and then Cindy saw him, and then Nancy walked into the kitchen and leaned over to Cindy and said, you know that man in the front room with Mr. Kenyon, he just disappeared. And that was our first experience there. But, you know, if you are old enough to remember how things were in this country at that time, it was at the height of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. This country was in political turmoil. It was an economic chaos. Mm -hmm. As bad as anything that we were experiencing moving, moving into the house, it was that kind of frenetic energy sure. that existed in this country at that time. And unfortunately, uh, the rate of inflation was spiking. The home values were dropping by the month. People were losing their shirts, losing their businesses. The oil cartel was established in the Middle East. The price of oil was hiked up through the roof. And uh, President Nixon declared a, um, uh, an embargo on travel. You could only travel for business on airplanes. I mean, there were gas lines. Mm -hmm. It was a terrible time in sure. this country's history. And my family had invested every conceivable dime they had access to into this property. Now, if we had put it on the market two months later after moving in, the logical question would be, why are you selling this house as fast as you bought this house? What's wrong with the place? Mm -hmm. My mother called our attorney, Sam Olivson, who is a close family friend of ours, and after the first major incident occurred in her bedroom, mm -hmm. 
Sam, I've made a terrible, terrible mistake. I need to get out of this. But there was nothing that he could do. There were no disclosure laws on the books at that time. Uh-huh. And even though there had been two people who had brought cases about haunted houses in front of the court, the Superior Court in Rhode Island, both of them were laughed out of court. You know, uh, the, the judge basically saying, you know, I'm not going to rule on something that I can't prove and I can't see. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, was, there was no escape for us. We were in, and we were in deep. Yeah. I mean, so, as a parent, you're almost, you're, you're thinking, well, here's the option. We deal with what's going on in this house. It's shelter. <laughs> it's, it's, it's warmth. Right. Or we can be homeless. And that sets just kind of sounds like the situation your parents were in, and they were trying yeah. to do what was and best for the family. Been. Sure. They, they would have lost everything. Yeah. So, and aside from that, you know, what, what convolutes it even more is that my father didn't believe what he was being reported to him. He was on the road. He had his own jewelry business. It was mm-hmm. a trunk business, and he had clients from Ohio to Upper New York State all the way to Florida, the whole eastern third of the United States. Mm-hmm. He had clients everywhere. So he would come home, he'd go into Providence, do business with all of his jewelry guys, load the car up to the max, and hit the road again. And that's how he was keeping that roof over our heads. Meanwhile, my mother and the five girls are home having one experience after another after another. Mm -hmm. And when Dad comes home exhausted from the last road trip, the last thing that he wants to hear is we have ghosts. I got beaten up in the warm room. A scythe came down in the barn and tried to slice my neck. It ruined your jacket. Uh, You know, on and on and on. I hear voices in my room telling me there are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. Can you imagine his reaction to all of that? Not only was he not there to, you know, protect and defend us against all enemies, foreign and domestic, there were no keys to that house. That house was left wide open all the time. There were no locks on the doors. None of the keys that were turned over at the closing worked on any of the doors. So he had that weighing on his mind. Then he comes home, and his wife is reporting her incidents, and his children are reporting their incidents. And what does he feel but helpless and completely out of control? And his reaction to that, to dismiss it, or if it got brought up too much to get angry about it, which shut everyone down. Mm -hmm. What was the point at which your father finally did accept that there was something going on uh, in that house? When he had no choice anymore, when he had absolutely no choice anymore, when he woke up and his back had been serrated bloody. Oh, wow. So at that point, he realized that all the stories that he had been told were, in fact, true because one of them had finally happened to him. Yes, and the thing is that that night that that occurred, he was laying right in bed beside my mother as she was under attack, and he, she was sure he was dead and that she was next because she did everything in her power. She grabbed, he had a big, thick head full of hair, and she sunk her hands in his hair and twisted and pulled and did everything that she could to wake him up, and he was, for all intents and purposes, dead. And she felt certain that she was going to go next. Wow. So he was not able to protect her even in their own bed. As as events like that occurred, after you had gone into the house, after 
it took some time, obviously, for your father to understand what was actually happening. What at what point was it where the Warrens did become involved? How far into your your stay at the home did did that involvement begin? Where they first stepped uh, through the doors of the home? Uh, it was just before uh, Halloween in October of 1973. Okay, so how many years so we, in had you been there at that point? We'd been there. Uh, two and a half, more than two and a half years, close and, to three years. And I'm assuming at this point that, that the event that you just described with your father had already occurred? Yes. Okay. But he was still denying it. He didn't want to discuss it with the Warrens. He thought really? that they were charlatans. He okay. thought that they were, you know, thrill seekers themselves. Sure. He didn't have any faith in what they brought to the table, mm -hmm. and he thought that it would just make things worse, which it did, because yeah. when that kind of energy comes into a house, you know, the psychic energy and the, you know, Ed was the only demonologist that was certified by the Catholic Church that was not a priest. Mm -hmm. You know, he had a, a long history and had done uh, a great deal of work over the years, and it was uh, horrifying to my father that this was, you know, walking it, this kind of energy in the guise of two people were, were walking into our house, and he was afraid of them, too. Sure. But his reaction to them was uh, aggressive. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, polite at first, polite enough, but yeah. uh, never trusted. And uh, he has since made amends with Mrs. Warren uh, yeah. when we were together out in California. Uh, he had a conversation with her, and uh, I'm so glad that that's been settled because sure. the last time she saw him, he was a raving lunatic. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was a very, very bad night. But the thing is that there were so many things that happened in the house that when the Warrens came, I can speak for myself that I felt relieved because here was someone that we could share our story with who told us that they believed us, mm -hmm. who told us that they were somewhat of an authority on the subject of what was happening in the house and that it would be um, safe to disclose. But April didn't want to tell them anything. I think she was afraid that they were going to make her little friend go away. She had a spirit that she had gotten very close with, a little boy who would come out of the eaves and go into the chimney closet, which was... Uh, set up like a playroom upstairs. Mm -hmm. It was the only really warm space in the house because the chimney came right up through the middle of the closet. Mm -hmm. And he would spend inordinate amounts of time with April when she was just a little itty-bitty. She was only five years old when we moved to the house. And she wouldn't tell the Warrens anything about that little boy. Mm -hmm. when, when the Warrens did come to the house for the first time, you said it, it stirred things up and it, it made things worse in the house. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like what, what changed from what was already going on, which sounded fairly extreme, uh, to, to what, what made it more extreme? Well, let me start with this. Uh, when Mrs. Warren walked into the house, she walked over to the black stove. She knew nothing about the history of the house. She knew nothing of our family. And she walked over to the stove, put her hand down on the corner of it, put her other hand over her eyes on her forehead, and said, I sense a malignant presence in this house. Her name is Bathsheba. So from that moment on, because it was so striking that she would even know the name of somebody that had lived in that house, mm -hmm. that Bathsheba kind of got the rap. You know what I mean? Yeah. From that point on, which is why... 
when she turned over her case files to New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers. That's why they built the story around Bathsheba, because that was the presence that she sensed. However, the spirit that was uh, repeatedly attacking my mother was most likely not Bathsheba Sherman. Uh, the spirit that came to my mother, to my sister Christine, to my sister Cindy, and the one that I saw had a broken neck, clearly broken. Her head looked like a desiccated hornet's nest with like leafy, flimsy skin hanging off it, covered in cobwebs and vermin, sprigs of hair, vacant hollow eyes, very, very thin lips, and chipped yellow teeth that looked like fangs. So almost like the, the horrible images you see portrayed in a movie that you go, oh, they're really embellishing that, but you're saying that that, that entity was fairly accurate or, or not, not quite even scary enough. Not quite even scary enough. Wow. Yes. And I'll tell you what, she absolutely had a broken neck, and there were three women that lived and died in that pro- on that property by their own hands, by hanging. Three of them. Mrs. Arnold in the barn, mm-hmm. Susan Arnold in the morning room, and there was one more, I can't her name's escaping me at the moment, um, that uh, hanged herself with a skein of yarn. Is there, is there any suspicion as to, to which one it may have been, or is that essentially the, the only evidence you have of the, the hangings and someone who would have had a broken neck on the property? Uh, we don't know exactly, and that's part of the mystery of it. Yeah. We'll never know, you know not, certainly not in this lifetime. Sure. But there were the, the most important thing, getting back to your original question mm-hmm. about why we stayed. Yeah. I, you know, 30, 40 years later, I look back on this now and I listen to my intuition. It has never, ever steered me wrong. And I look back on our time there and I see now that everything that conspired in the universe to bring us to that house likewise conspired to keep us there for as long as it took for us to see what we saw and hear what we heard and know what we know now. And I really do believe that it was our job to take that all in and to eventually share this story with the world. It's that important. And uh, an evening that was portrayed in the movie, The Conjuring, uh, as uh, a exorcism. But as you said earlier, it was actually a seance that was performed uh, with the Warrens. Uh, let's walk through that night. Let's walk through it from the beginning and hear exactly what happened. Uh, because from what, what I've heard from you and from what I've read in several places, reality is sometimes scarier than what was even portrayed in in the movie itself well when the warrens called and asked my mother if they could come that night it was a friday night my father was due home anytime my mother was preparing dinner when they called it was uh i could tell uh, she almost got kind of a gray look on her face because she just didn't want to deal with it it was it was just, it was so difficult for her. And my mother had been undergoing a transition of sorts herself. And that's why the Warrens felt so compelled to come and help because they felt that my mother was suffering oppression 
of a spirit, and they wanted to dispel the spirit from the house. Mm-hmm. She did not know that they were coming with an entourage. She had no idea. When my father came home, we were all sitting at the dining room table having dinner. She told him that they were coming that night, and he blew a fuse, which silenced everybody in the room, at which point, you know, appetites were lost. <laughs> sure. Everybody gagged down the rest of their dinner, and then Mom suggested that we all find a place to go that night because, you know, Roger was irritated. It was probably best if the girls were gone. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a Friday night, and everybody had plans, and friends were off doing things, and only Nancy was able to escape from the house that night. She went with her friend Katie, but there was no place else for any of us to go. So we were all uh, sent upstairs when they arrived. Uh, My father had a scowl on his face. It was clear he did not want them. When he saw that another car pulled in behind and people were unloading equipment, it just, it was, uh, you could cut the tension with a knife Mm -hmm. in that house. My mother sat on the chair in the parlor and just um, kind of went into a stupor. She was so exhausted and she was so tired of fighting and it was just, Difficult. I'm so sorry. I'm so, okay. There's a hawk in the yard, and the dog has to do her job. And her lunch. job is to chase the hawk away. That's okay. Okay, I will go into the back part of the house where okay. it's quiet. I'm so sorry. You'll it's have okay. to edit this sure, out. Sure. So sorry. It's okay. Um, so uh, anyway, she was uh, very demure, and my father was the one that was uh, truly agitated about this, what he considered a a gross imposition Mm -hmm. on the family. So Ed took my father off and tried to explain to him that he and Lorraine were very, very concerned that my mother was slipping away. Mm -hmm. Something had to be done. There needed to be some intervention on her behalf. It took Ed more than an hour to convince my father that a seance was in order. what Mrs. Warren called a gathering of souls. Mm-hmm. When you let me just ask you this here: when you say your mom was was slipping away, is that implying that that she was under some sort of, uh, I don't want to say possession, but but is that kind of the what what you may be hinting at, or or, or some something of that that form? Yes, they okay. felt absolutely certain that she was oppressed and okay. that she was. Uh, that she was being claimed, okay. as it were, okay. from within. So what they wanted to do was call forth the spirits and dispel them from the house. Okay. But they were not equipped. You know, this was spiritual warfare. Sure. And they didn't come with enough weaponry or enough troops mm-hmm. to handle that. And what happened was finally my father acquiesced, <clears throat> and he... Uh, joined in with this uh, group around the dining room table. Cindy and I, Christine stayed upstairs, April stayed upstairs. Cindy and I slipped down the front stairwell and were standing in the front hallway that connects the dining room to the kitchen. And the door had not been closed all the way. It was open about an inch and a half. We could see into the room and they had dimmed all the lights and there were candles and the medium took all of her goodies out of her little silk 
grab bag and set up her thing. Her name was Mary, and the priest was there, and he was he seemed to just be observing. Mm-hmm. And when this happened, as soon as <clears throat> Lorraine started beckoning the spirits, the medium took over from that point and said that the the gathering had commenced, and then all hell broke loose. It was that fast. Wow. When you say all hell broke loose, can you describe what happened? The table began to levitate. Now, this was a 250 or 300-pound solid rock maple table. I'd be surprised if a 5-pound Walmart table levitated. (laughs) Anything levitating is not a normal occurrence. To say that there was a force to be reckoned with is the understatement of the new millennium. Yeah. It was. It began to lift the table. Uh, my father jerked away from the table. Ed pulled him back. And then my mother, who was sitting in a captain's chair, there were two captain's chairs uh, at the table. It, they were at least 40 or 50 pounds apiece. Mm-hmm. They had the big arms and, you know, for the head sure. of the dining room table. And she was sitting there, and her her body started to uh, curl in a way that is not humanly possible. She pulled her legs up. Her legs were pulled up to her knees, touching her chin. She began to warp and cry out in pain. Anybody that had witnessed this would assume that the next thing they would hear are bones breaking. Yeah. She started to speak in a language that does not exist on this planet. She spoke in a voice that was not her own. It was dark. It was ominous. She growled like an animal. She cried in agony for about 30 seconds to a minute that seemed like eternity. We watched her body transform, and then it began to lift. The chair began to lift, and then in a split second a split second she was thrown from the dining room into the parlor the whole chair with her in it as though she had literally been uh tied into the chair and it went with her and when it hit the floor of the parlor her head hit the floor of the parlor as well and i thought i'd watched my mother die Mm -hmm that her skull had been fractured and that she was dead, at which point my father jumped up, went to rush to her. Uh, Ed grabbed his arm to keep him from going to her. Lorraine was already on her way. The medium had collapsed on the table. She wasn't showing any signs of life at all. She was just laying there. And when Ed tried to stop my father, my father turned around and cold cocked him, just Mm -hmm. took him right to the floor, busted his face, I cleaned up the blood later, so I know it was a it was a hell of a hit. Yeah. And uh, he rushed to my mother, started taking her vital signs, making sure that she was at that point. Cindy and I were both quaking, literally quaking yeah. in fear. And I grabbed her by the hand. April opened the door to the bedroom. I turned around and I didn't yell at her because I didn't want to give my location away but was um, very mean to my little sister and told her to close that door. 
And, of course, by the time I grabbed Cindy's hand and we went up those stairs, poor little April's upstairs crying, and I had to, you know, make amends with her because I was never mean to any of my sisters. But I did not want April exposed to what was happening down there. So, meanwhile, uh, I went through the uh, upstairs, up that stairwell, through the house, across the top floor, through all three bedrooms, and Cindy followed me, and I tried to convince her not to come. I said, I'm just going to go check on Mom, but she said, no, I'm going. And so we came down the other stairwell that opens up from my bedroom into the parlor where we could see what was going on in the parlor because, of course, everybody had moved from the dining room into the parlor. Mm-hmm. At which point my father was absolutely frantic, out of his mind, trying to get my mother to come back. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was begging her, begging her to you know, show some signs of life. She was completely unconscious. Yeah. Uh, the next logical question is, why didn't someone call 911? Yeah. Well, 911 didn't even exist back then. There you go. And to, uh, to call the police in on this or yeah. an ambulance in on this would have made everything even crazier. My father was monitoring her vital signs. He knew she was still alive. And so they were just trying to get her to come back, to come back. Uh, meanwhile, all of the, the tech crew had gone downstairs prior to this event and hooked up. They had all state-of-the-art cameras and their tripods, you know, these big, heavy cameras and all kinds of stuff and lighting and sound and everything, at which point Mrs. Warren, after this had occurred, um, and my father was telling all of them to get the hell out of his house. Mrs. Warren directed the tech crew to go back downstairs and to retrieve their camera equipment. When they got downstairs, it had been destroyed. No one was in the cellar during this incident. No one was downstairs. Oh, wow. And all of their equipment had been decimated as though it had been picked up and slammed against granite walls. It was in pieces all over the cellar. Wow. Uh, Those two men came up with tears pouring out of their eyes. All of their investment was gone. Mm -hmm. So they gathered up what they could and as quickly as they could because, of course, at that point, no one wanted to be in the cellar of that house. And uh, started removing their uh, shambles of items out the kitchen door. They didn't even come back through the parlor. I never saw them come back through the parlor. All I know is that they gathered their equipment, and they went outside, and they stayed outside for the duration. Uh, The woman that was there who was taping the incident picked up the big reel-to-reel, packed it up, got it out of there. Meanwhile, Mary Pastorella, who was the medium at this um, episode, event, whatever, uh, had apparently come back and she was uh, sitting at the dining room table and with her head just hanging, just sitting there. So she really couldn't participate in anything at that point. She was obviously completely drained. Whatever came into my mother that night, I don't know if she was possessed for a short amount of time or if this was just a vicious attack. But I will tell you that whatever it was that entered that house that night subdued the spirits, scared them as badly as it scared the mortal souls that witnessed this event. And it had every power that it possessed to have killed my mother that night. It opted not to. 
Rather, its choice was to make its presence known to everyone else that was there. When you say it, it, it scared the spirits, how, what do you mean by that? Uh, after this episode, mm-hmm. the house was quiet for months really? and months afterwards. Wow. Yes, what? I mean, absolutely subdued all activity in the house. What was the priest's reaction as this was going on? You said the medium had passed out. Was the priest doing anything? Was he? Did he attempt anything when this was all going on? He was shivering like a leaf in wow. the autumn wind. Wow. He could. His face was all the blood just drained right out of his face. Sure. He, he was uh, with this stark, stoic look in his wide eyes, just watching what he had seen was obviously something that he had never seen before. Sure. And it scared the living daylights out of him. Was that the most extreme evening that you ever had spent in that home? Yes, and it was the only time that I was ever truly frightened yeah. in that house. And it was because I thought that I'd lost my mother. Sure. Now, you, you guys stayed in the house for several years to come. Yes, a- another years yes as as those years went on after that night was what what sort of activity did you encounter uh, as those years went on uh multitudes yeah. multitudes of things was um, it but me, a lot of them were playful okay. and a lot of them were um you know relatively sweet natured it, sure. it wasn't there was, you know, people say, was there poltergeist activity in the house? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I just turned 55, and I can't tell you now any more than mm-hmm. I knew when I was 12 years old what exactly was going on in that house. Sure. All that I do know is that it was real and it was true. And, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I can't explain it. And anybody sure. out in the world that says that they can mm-hmm. and that they know exactly what's going on with the supernatural world they're being disingenuous they're living in bad faith they're telling themselves a lie and then spreading it to the rest of the world because if we don't know no one does Mm -hmm. when when you did eventually your family eventually did move from that house was there a reason for for the move uh, that was related to the the activity or was it just time for a move my mother uh my mother approached my father and said, Roger, I won't survive another winter in this house. And she meant it, and he believed her. And they put the house on the market where it languished for six months. Uh, I was in college at the time, and all the time that I was in college and I had heard that the house was on the market, I was begging, praying, please don't sell our farm. Please don't sell our farm. And it wasn't until I had the same conversation with my mother Mm -hmm. that she had had with my father that I realized that we were going to have to relinquish it because my mom could not stay there anymore. So after we had literally zero bites on this property, Mm -hmm. my father went to the abutting landowner in Massachusetts. We had 200 acres of land, 60 acres of it, even though they had sold off 100 that was across the street Mm -hmm. earlier in our tenure at the farm, we still had 100 acres and 60 acres of it was in Massachusetts. So he went to the abutting landowner and cut him a very sweet deal on the property. And we moved about two weeks after I graduated from college. So I hardly had any time to say goodbye to my friends and to part with that place. That was 
a very tumultuous time in our family Mm -hmm. because half of us wanted to run like the wind and the other half of us never, ever wanted to leave the farm. So it created a very deep emotional rift in the family. And when it came time to tell this story, I started writing this, doing a diagram and an outline of a manuscript in August of 07. I didn't even tell anybody in my family right away that I was doing it because I knew that it was going to be difficult and that it was going to raise hairs and and bring back a lot of things that we had not discussed in decades. Sure. So, and, and, and it did. It was, I'll tell you, it was the hardest thing that I have ever done in my life. It was emotionally devastating, very difficult for everybody in our family, and yet many, many passages of the books are literally verbatim from the person whose story is being told. Mm -hmm. I went to great lengths, extraordinary lengths, to interview ad nauseum everybody in the family. And in the process of doing that, a lot of those hurt feelings came back to the surface and it created consternation. I mean, my mother and Nancy were fighting and, you know, Cindy was, Cindy was all bent out of shape. I mean, there were just a, a lot of things that came up because mom looked at me one day and she said, you know, Annie, we spent 30 years trying to bury our dead and look, look how close to the surface they were buried. Sure. What what came first, the idea for you to to create this book and, and share this story, or did the, the movie concept come up? How did this all eventually come out to the surface, to the public hearing about this? Well, this is one of the very bizarre things about it that people don't know, and that is that before I even told my family that I was doing this, I was taking my own recollections and putting them down on index cards and putting them in a recipe box okay. because it was such a huge story sure. that I knew I was going to have to organize it first mm-hmm. and come up with some semblance of, of control over it before mm-hmm. I could actually begin writing it. Sure. So I hadn't shared anything with my family yet, and I got my first call from a Hollywood producer. And it was on the, the last day of my 48th year. Mm-hmm. As I turned 49 at midnight, we were still on the phone. Oh, wow. And we- he's the one, and he wasn't the only one. I had two separate, distinct individuals call me from Hollywood. And there was no way that they could have known that I had started writing this book. No, not at all. Was it, it, was it the fact that did Lorraine Warren... Uh, begin to discuss the idea of, of sharing this story with Hollywood, and that's how they were forwarded on to you then? Yes. Okay. It happened simultaneously, simultaneously and when I talked with Lorraine out in California, mm-hmm. I said, do you remember back when this all began? And she said, yes, it was in August of 07. And I said, Lorraine, it was like a bell went off in my head. Mm-hmm. It was like an old-fashioned alarm clock, you know, the kind that's so loud that you yeah. couldn't possibly sleep through it. Sure. It was like that. My whole life, I had a wonderful life. I had a, a beautiful little cottage on Waterman Lake in Harmony, Rhode Island. I had a great job 2.7 miles away at Harmony Hill School. I loved it. I was a counselor there. Uh-huh. Um, I was with the Theater Company of Rhode Island. I had been for 20 years. I loved 
my theater company, and I loved everything about my life. And suddenly, suddenly, inexplicably, I was dissatisfied with everything in my life. And I needed to tell this story, and I knew I was going to have to relocate to do it. I knew within a few months I was living in Georgia. I packed up everything I owned, put my critters in a U-Haul sitting right beside me riding shotgun, Mm -hmm. and down we came. Because I could not, I was the only one living in Rhode Island. Everybody else was living in the South. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I had to be with my family to tell this story authentically, Mm -hmm. to have those midnight conversations over Coco where, you know, in a game of Scrabble where something came to the surface. And I can't tell you how many times my mother would divulge something to me that I had quite literally never heard of before, things that she had kept to herself when we were children Mm -hmm. because she didn't want to traumatize us any further. That was our biggest concern about the film. Well, my biggest concern was when they hired James Wan to be the director. I had not seen any of his former films, but Uh I had heard plenty about them. And my reaction was, oh, my God. They hired the king of slasher porn to make our family story. Yeah. And I could not have been more wrong. I could not have judged him more harshly than I did, prejudged him. Sure. Because when I met him and we spoke at length about what his vision for this project was, he couldn't have been more respectful, more sensitive, more mature, and more intellectually involved. He made a real emotional investment, as did everyone else that was involved with this project. They knew they weren't telling an ordinary ghost story. Sure. They were telling the truth, at least to the, to the, the best of their ability that they were able. Sure, and it was best they could fit into a two-hour time window on a, on a movie. What, uh-huh. what has been the rest of... I mean, I know you said your mother has not seen the film. What about your sisters? Have, have they seen the film, and have they had a reaction to it? Uh, yes, everybody in the family has seen the film, um, some more than once. Uh, I've seen it five times. My father's seen it a few times. You know, because all of our friends were like, oh, let's go. It's still in the theaters. Let's go. Let's go see the movie. And you know what's fascinating to me is every time I see it, I walk out and I see full-grown, big, hulky guys with tear streaks down their face. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it really does get to the heart of the matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. It really has an emotional impact on people who see this film. But um, my mother has yet to see it. If she requests to see it, then, of course... Um, we'll get the DVD and mm-hmm. and pop it in and let her see it on the TV screen. But uh, this was not something she needed to go into a movie theater to see, sure. especially because she's um, she's frail and you know God forbid anybody were were to recognize us. Sure, I wouldn't want that kind of an onslaught to occur sure. around her. I can handle it, but she couldn't. Sure. So um, we're uh, we're taking that slowly. I do feel absolutely certain, however, that in the future there will be a film rendition of House of Darkness, House of Light, the trilogy. I don't know how they could cram that into a two-hour film either, Mm -hmm. but um, there is a great deal of interest around seeing the trilogy made into a film. So to my knowledge, it will be, when it comes to pass, the first time in history that um, two films have been made about the exact same story from opposite perspectives. You know, here's an interesting thought on on that, just because it is such a a long story. 
Um, that almost sounds like it could be uh, almost like a, a drama series. I mean, the amount of stories and amount of material that is there to base it on. That sounds like a perfect AMC type, yeah. uh, you know, type show where, you know, it, it's a multi-season, multi-year, uh, you know, drama. I could see something like that unfolding uh, mm-hmm. with, with that story. Well, I would really, really like to work with uh, the folks at New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers because I'll tell you, the, the big that I had to take around this entire project mm-hmm. was signing my, my name to a contract to use our names and likenesses to tell this story. Sure. And I did it blind. I did not know who I was turning permission over to. Yeah. And since then, you know, as these years have passed, and I have gotten to know all these wonderful people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have an idea in your head about, you know, the, the Hollywoodites, you know, how they are. Sure. They're as down to earth and, and just absolutely beautiful souls, yeah. wonderful, wonderful people. And I want to work with them because sure. I know them now. They are a known quantity. They were strangers that became friends. Sure. Sure, no, that makes total sense, especially for something as sensitive as this. That is, it is part of your life story, and you want it to be portrayed in as accurate a way uh, as possible. One more... Well, I... Go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I, one more question about uh, once you did leave uh, the home, and I know you had already gone off to college, and, uh, and your parents decided, okay, it's time to, to leave the home. Did anything follow you? Was there any occurrences, anything that was comparable to what you experienced in that home happened to you after you left that house? Well, that's a big part of Volume 3. And I'll tell you, uh, we all thought that when we left the farm, that would be it. Mm -hmm. But my mother said uh, to me uh, not long ago, she said, you know, we were able to leave the farm, but the farm will never leave us. Yeah and attachments were formed. We moved in as a normal family, and we left 10 years later as a paranormal family. All of us have had numerous incidents since leaving the farm. Mm -hmm. Attachments were formed, and I will tell you without divulging too much that uh, years and years after the Warrens had left the farm and we had not heard from them again, uh, they contacted my mother in Georgia Mm -hmm. when we moved to Georgia, which is where we went when we left the farm. We moved to the mountains of Cherokee County, Mm -hmm. uh, north of Atlanta. And uh, somehow she found where we went and called and suggested to my mother that time had passed, we had left the farm, and would she be interested in working with a ghostwriter, which I always find that so funny, um, to write a book about the experiences at the farm and possibly to make a film. Mm -hmm. And she offered my mother a boatload of money, life-changing money, Mm -hmm. to do this. And my mother's immediate response was, no, I don't want to revisit that. I want to leave it all behind. It's over. It's done. I don't want to go back and revisit any of this. Mm -hmm. And Lorraine said, just talk to Roger about this, Carolyn. This is a lot of money we're talking about. It's enough to change your whole family's future. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, you know, I'll talk to him about it. I will. Well, he came home and fell asleep on the couch, and she went downstairs to throw in a load of laundry in the cellar of the new house that Mm -hmm. we were living in. And she was attacked down in the cellar of the house, a 200-pound 
solid oak door that had been removed and placed very carefully out of the way Mm -hmm. so that antiques could be moved into the house. After we had moved in, that door had not been put back because my father wanted to use it elsewhere in the house. So he placed it very carefully against the back wall of the cellar at such an angle that it was literally impossible for that thing to move. And it was behind my mother as she was putting clothes into the washing machine and it came down on top of her in a split second and cracked her skull and knocked her shoulder out of place and she was very badly uh, injured that night. Wow. And she knew. And when Mrs. Warren called back the next day, Uh my mother said, absolutely not, Lorraine. Absolutely not. Yeah. Wow. Was there was there concern when you decided to start writing this these books, this series of books from your mother at all? I mean, uh, given what had happened the last time uh, someone had uh, inquired to your mom about sharing the story? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was concerned, and I had reason to be concerned. Sure. Uh, there was, um, I have had, I could write an entire book just about what happened while I was writing these books. I really? can tell wow. you that much. Wow. Uh, not just what's happened here. I have to be very careful about that because I live with my mother and my sister Christine, and sure. this is her home. Okay. Uh, just a pretty little farm just west of Atlanta, about 40 miles outside of the city, out in the cow and horse country. We mm-hmm. have more cows and horses than humans as neighbors. It's great. Sure. But, uh, you know, we, uh, we do love our place in the country. However,. Um, We had an incident. Uh, All seven of us were invited out to the set in March of 2012 as they were filming in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. uh, the house that you see in the film. Sure. And we were invited to the set. At the last minute, my mother backed out of the trip, and we were all very reluctant because I was coming in from a book signing in Michigan. My father and my sister Nancy would be coming up from Florida, and my mother was supposed to travel with the rest of the family from Atlanta to uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, and she backed out at the last minute. And interestingly, Lily Taylor backed out at the last minute. So the two matriarchs of the Perrin family Mm -hmm. were not present on the set the day that the rest of us were there. And they were doing an interview with us. Uh, late in the afternoon after lunch, it was probably around 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and my mother was home alone, and we never, ever, ever leave my mother home alone. So, of course, we'd made arrangements to have nieces come by and check on her, neighbors to check on her. And uh, we were granting this interview, and we were about three-quarters of the way through it when a rogue wind, a supernatural wind, passed through the set but only where we were. I looked immediately. I'm talking 60, 70 mile an hour wind, uh, just an ominous wind that came over us. It blew the booms and the screens and the cameras and the tech crew was grabbing their equipment as fast as they could to salvage what they could. It was um, just bizarre. And I turned and I looked at my sister Christine and I said, Bathsheba's curse, and she just nodded knowingly. 
and because we've always called anything that, that's bad that happens. You know, uh-huh. my mom says always make light of the darkness. Sure. And so whenever you know somebody gets a hangnail, oh, Bathsheba's curse. Yeah. Oh, oh the, the the axe handle fell off. Oh, Bathsheba's curse. You know. Sure. And it's it's just kind of been a running joke in the family. Well, I was serious as a heart attack, and I looked at Christine, and I just said what I said, and she nodded, and we found out two hours later that that exact same time my mother had fallen in the house and broken her hip. Oh, my gosh. And the way that it happened was just bizarre. So when we got the message, we were in a remote location. Everybody had their cell phones turned off to do the interview. Mm -hmm. So when everything was over and all the cell phones went back on, a text message got through to us out there. There was hardly any signal. I don't even know how it got through. But the message came from my nephew that said, Grandma has fallen and broken her hip. She's in the hospital. Stephanie's with her. And, oh, my God, I mean, it was like I I ran to Rob Cohen. I said, we need the van. We've got to go. My mother's been hurt. And they got us back to the hotel. In the meantime, as we got closer to the hotel and had more signal, we were able to be in touch with everybody in the family. And we found out that she was so badly hurt that they had postponed the surgery to stabilize her. They didn't even think she would survive the anesthesia. To tell you that it was upsetting... You know, yeah, yeah, and oh, give me a second. Here. Sure, sure. Um, so the doctor told us not to drive all night because we'd all driven in from different places, uh-huh. <clears throat> and told us not to drive all night to come back. That they weren't going to do the surgery until the following day. Mm-hmm. So we got very little sleep and left at the crack of dawn. Uh, from Wilmington and started driving back. The five of us, mm-hmm. um, the five daughters, were traveling together in two vehicles. Got to the hospital together, all five parents, sisters, walking into the hospital, uh, turned some heads, let me tell you. And sure. we walked into my mother's room, and she had just come out of surgery. She was completely, utterly sedated. And the doctor, the nurse, my uh, two of my nieces were in the room and all five of us came in at once and my mother sat straight up in bed and looked at me in the eyes and she said Bathsheba's curse she does not want to be exposed I have not felt that presence in more than 30 years wow And then she laid back down, of course, and went right back into a deep sleep. She has no recollection of it, but, you know, everybody there heard Mm -hmm. what she said. And uh, she was pushed. Wow. She was pushed. So believe me when I tell you, we don't leave her alone. Yeah. That's that's very understandable. (laughs) Well, I went to war with Bathsheba over that. I said, if you had anything to do with this, anything Mm -hmm. to do with this, you take me on, not my mother. Don't you ever touch my mother again. Mm -hmm. I'm the one that signed the contract. I'll tell you what she's angry about. She's angry about her portrayal in the film, and she's angry about what she perceives to be the lies still being told about her, and she's very angry that a man played her in the film. I've had numerous visitations and dreams and dreamlike states where she's made it very clear to me that she's not pleased at all. Yeah. But now she's 
happy with me because I go out and defend her. And share the so story, yeah. perhaps this is, you know, it had to come to pass the way that it did. Sure. And the, you know, the cautionary tale, the moral to the story is words are weapons. Yeah. Use them carefully. What you claim to be true of another person mm-hmm. might, might live with them throughout their lives and may even haunt them after death. No, but I think that the the entity in the house that was tormenting my mother was from the 1700s, from the Arnold family that originally had that farm that mm-hmm. married into the Richardson family that built that house in, in 1736 was when the house was finished. Do- and I'll tell you something, there is a very high likelihood that things that, that passed later in the 1800s and in the 1900s and the multiple deaths and tragedies that happened on that property mm-hmm. were probably because probably because those people were as haunted as we were mm-hmm. eight just... generations of one extended family lived and died in that house prior to our arrival and many of them never left it's a lot of energy in that mm-hmm. one one place let me ask you this and i don't don't know how much you would know about it but in the filming of the movie, other than what you just shared with us, uh, on set, when they were actually filming, do, did you hear of any stories of anything strange or paranormal happening just through the production of the film itself? Well, the spirit that tormented my mother always tormented her with fire. Uh-huh. And the night after we left, the hotel that the entire cast and crew was staying in Mm -hmm. had an inexplicable fire and they had to clear that hotel out at two o'clock in the morning they were all standing outside in the parking lot in their jammies oh wow um and that was just the first incident they had not had any incidents on set prior to our arrival but after we left all bets were off really wow and i don't tell their stories Sure. Some of them I don't even know. Uh, Joey King told me some things when I was on a press junket with her mm-hmm. uh, in Miami. Uh, and I've heard from other cast members, other um, folks involved with the film, mm-hmm. producers and stuff, that there were a series of events that happened. Sure. Uh, scared James Wan half to death. Wow. I mean, he really is a chicken. He'll sure. admit it, too. He really <laughs> will. He had the opportunity to go look at the original farm and said, no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks. Wow. I'm good. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, he took very seriously what was happening sure. and, uh, to say that everyone on that set was hyper vigilant for the rest of the filming of that uh, movie, uh, is an understatement for sure. sure. Uh, there were many things that happened, but I let those people tell their own stories. Sure. I don't tell them for them because it was numerous. There are a few things online. There uh-huh. are a few, uh, articles that were written. Uh, one from the local paper and a couple out of the Hollywood press um, that uh, <clears throat> that approached this subject mm-hmm. with several of the cast members, and they do have stories to tell, yes, but okay. I don't believe they're really talking about it. Okay, okay. Well, thank you. Uh, Andrea, thank you so much for, for taking some time today to sit down and share your story with us. I really greatly appreciate it. I do want to read the books. Uh, if, if our listeners want to read them or, or get a hold of them, where, what are the best ways to do that? 
Well, they're everywhere omnipresent like God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the only, the only um, continent that I haven't heard from on the, on the globe yet is Antarctica, and that's only because the penguins can't read. You will now. Someone um, will hear this in Antarctica and go, I have the book. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so there you go. Check and, that and one that up soon. That could be. Yep. Uh, but you can get them uh, online. The, the fastest and the least expensive way to get them is to order them directly from my publisher, which is their fabulous authorhouse.com and they have a bookstore you just click on and you just put in the title of the book volume one volume two and volume three will be out at the end of the month so all of the story will be out in the world by uh halloween actually it just happened to work out that way and the book of course um, called house of darkness house of light that's what they need to look yeah and there's no comma in between my mother is the one who titled the book when I was about three or four hundred pages into the original manuscript before it turned into a trilogy because it was so long. Sure. And she said, you know, what are you going to title the book? And I said, I don't know, Mom. I haven't really thought about it yet. It's, it's you know, got to get to the heart of the matter. And she just looked at me and she said, House of Darkness, House of Light. It was both. Yeah, very fitting title for the, the book and the story. Andrea, thank you so much again for talking with us. Thank you. That does it for this episode of Real Ghost Stories Online. If you want some brand new episodes, sign up on the website, realghoststoriesonline.com to become an EPP. 18 brand new episodes all set to be emailed to you instantly. It goes right to the email address you sign up with through PayPal, and you'll have uh, 18 episodes to binge upon. we got brand new episodes coming up very soon again here at Real Ghost Stories Online. Happy holidays. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.